There we go. It's great to be here with you this morning and uh, a part of your time of loving the Lord and loving Him together. I trust that you've had a great week. I've had an outstanding week. We welcomed our ninth grandchild on Thursday into our family, which was a wonderful opportunity. I know it's hard to believe that someone who looks so young could have so many grandchildren, but uh, it's uh, Benjamin is the third uh, child in our son's family. We have three of our own children, Hannah, who has four children, Aaron has two and now Davy has three and so uh, David's other two boys, uh, Isaac is four and Joshua is two and it's just been wonderful over the last couple of days to watch Joshua who's two come to grips with this new human being that's arrived in their family and uh, he's a lot more fascinated with Benjamin, uh, Isaac loves Benjamin and knows how to cuddle him properly but Joshua at the age of two is still discovering how to love appropriately a little baby and so obviously he's fascinated with his eyes but wants to poke them out and fascinated with his ears and wants to pull them off and, uh, and so but it's just it's wonderful to watch how people want to love one another at such a young age that all they really know is the warmth and affection and desire to connect uh, to others. And so this morning, uh, what I'm wanting you to do, as I have the privilege of being here with you, is for you to consider this question. This is my big idea for our consideration this morning. What if your spiritual maturity was measured by how well you're learning to love other people? What if your spiritual maturity was measured by how well you're learning to love other people? What if the goal of being a disciple of Jesus was that you were learning to love others as Jesus loves you? I have the privilege of having made three disciples in particular, they're my children, and uh, it's been a great joy to help them grow and to become followers of Jesus. I now have the privilege of doing that with nine grandchildren. We are all called to make disciples. It's not the work of the church as an organisation. We individually are called to make disciples to influence other people into the ways of the kingdom of God and we're also meant to be becoming disciples and so we're all on a journey we're all learning how to be like Jesus and how to become like him and learning how to walk with God so that we would reflect him well and so in this whole area of discipleship and becoming a disciple Jesus gave us some reasonably clear ideas about what should be at the center of our discipleship of our growing as a disciple of our making other disciples we find it in Matthew chapter 28 and so if you have a bible if you can turn with me there this morning that would be great so Matthew chapter 28 and uh, verses that many of you will have a level of familiarity with um, but I trust that as we unpack them this morning there'll be something new that uh, lodges inside of your heart so Matthew 28 verse 18 and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to focus on the phrase teaching them to observe or the other word that may be in your translation is obey. Teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And so I want you to think of a bicycle wheel with me this morning. It has a hub and it has spokes that go out to the rim. 
And so in church, we learn lots of wonderful lessons. We learn all sorts of things about how to be followers of Jesus and how to live our lives in a way that honours him. We learn about forgiveness. We learn about prayer. We learn about faith and standing on the word of God. We discover what worship looks like. We learn about tithing. We learn about all sorts of things. And I want to suggest to you this morning that they are all spokes. They're all spokes that come back to the central hub and that the wheel is able to function properly because they're all connected to the hub. The hub is here where Jesus says, teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. So Jesus was saying, there is one hub. There is one thing I want you to continually focus on as you make disciples and as you become a disciple. So the word observe or obey there means to guard from loss, by keeping your eye upon. So Jesus is saying, teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon all that I command you. Our eye gets distracted by all sorts of things in life. Our eye gets taken to all sorts of things that are going on in our circumstances, that are going on relationally, and we find ourselves emotionally being drawn to all sorts of spaces. But Jesus wanted us to learn how to guard from loss by keeping our eye upon all that I have commanded you. The word there, I, is unbelievably important in my humble opinion. I believe that the Lord gave us a a commandment for New Testament living, which is different to the two great commandments of the Old Testament. I believe that the two great commandments were for Old Testament living, and there is a new commandment that we've been given for New Testament living. Um, So if you turn with me to Mark chapter 13, before I lose you too quickly out on this thin ice, and uh, go to verse, uh, sorry, John chapter 13 and verse 34. So here Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Teach them to observe or obey, teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon all that I have commanded you. I want to suggest to you when Jesus said, I have commanded you, he's speaking about this commandment. It's a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. I want you at this point to note the word commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not a conversation. It's not a proposition. It's actually an expectation that comes from heaven that we would step into this lifestyle. It's a new commandment. Why is it new? Because there's information in it that these people have never heard before. We've heard it many times because we're now living 2,000 years on. But for the Jews, when they first heard it, there was new information in here that they have never heard before. Love one another as I have loved you. What have they heard before? Love one another as you love yourself, the second great commandment. And so Jesus is actually changing the second commandment from love one another as you love yourself or love your neighbour to love one another as I have loved you. If you follow this new commandment, you will fulfil the two great commandments because when you love one another as I have loved you, when you know experientially and by encounter the love of God for you personally, you will love him back with everything that you have. When you understand through revelation the depth of his love for you, that is what motivates your worship. That is what motivates your giving. That is what motivates your forgiveness. That is what motivates your prayer. Because it's the hub. It's all of those other spokes are meant to be motivated by this deep sense of how much I'm loved by God. And not only that, we fulfill the first commandment and we fulfill the second great commandment of love one another. 
And so here Jesus is actually shifting the focus into a space where we are, we are saying loving one another as he has loved us is the most important thing. Teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. Teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon how much they are loved by me so that they can love others well. This is the center. This is the hub. This is where everything else comes from. And so our spiritual maturity needs to be marked by how well we're loving other people as Jesus loved us. And so we find in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, it says, To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. That Greek word there, to know, means to know by experience and encounter. And so Paul is saying to know by experience and encounter the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, surpasses what you know in your head, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. We've been educated to think that if we know it in our head, we know it. But the truth is that we don't know things in our head only. We know them in our heart primarily. When you're squeezed by life, what comes out? When you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. When you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. When you squeeze a Christian, you should get Jesus juice. But is is Jesus juice coming out of when you are squeezed by relationships where people are hurting you? where they're not being kind to you, where your finances are going down the tube, when you are diagnosed with an illness that causes you to be overwhelmed by, am I going to live much longer? When you're squeezed by pressure, what comes out of us? Because what comes out of us is what we know in our heart more than what we know in our head. I, back in 1996 and 1997, uh, we have been leading the church at, at Stairway C3 Camberwell, as it was back in those days, in the high school hall, And over an 18-month period, 380 people left our church. We went from 1,150 people back to somewhere in the 800s. And it was an excruciating time. They were all let out by one person in particular. I knew in my head that I needed to forgive them. But honestly, what I really wanted to do was break their kneecaps. In my heart, I was so distressed and so broken because of what was going on. And so what I knew in my head, I knew I had to forgive them, but boy, it was hard in in here to genuinely forgive them. And so I went on a journey. I decided that if I could imagine meeting them at the airport and opening my arms and going to embracing them and telling them that I cared about them, then I would know that I'd forgiven them. And so that was a journey. My first, my first port of call on that journey was that I had a birdcage in my head with them inside of the birdcage and I'd somewhat reasonably regularly, maybe 20 times a day, take them out of the birdcage, had the argument with them again that I should have had with them, stuck some pins in them and put them back in the birdcage and felt that I'd actually won the argument. Now, I know that you have not been like that. I, I understand that I'm a far worse sinner than you are, but, but, but that's, that's where I was at that time. And so all I'm trying to say is that what we know in our heart always trumps what we know in our head. And so what's going on inside of our heart when it comes to love is that we find this incredibly challenging to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Because Jesus loves us unconditionally, yet we have been taught, we've learned how to love conditionally. And so buried deep inside of our hearts, we know love conditionally. We don't actually know the love of God unconditionally unless we've experienced it and encountered it in ongoing ways and at the depth of our soul. 
And so the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is how are we growing in loving one another? Because Jesus said the center of our spirituality is to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon how much you're loved by God so you can love other people well. And it was a commandment. It was something that he anticipated that we would step into. And so as we try and step into it, what are the roadblocks to us actually getting in there? What are the roadblocks from our conditional way of having learnt love that stop us from getting into an unconditional place of loving well? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you three of them. All of us, when we were created by God, we popped out of our mother's wombs like Benjamin did on Thursday. And inside of us, we all have three driving motivations or emotions. We want to belong. We want to be significant. And we want to be secure. Every single one of us in life, we want to feel like we belong, we want to be significant, and we want to be secure. God created you this way. He wants you to find the answer to those three things in Him, but when we don't know Him, we go and find the answer elsewhere. And so because we want to belong, because we want to be significant, and because we want to be secure, we start to ask this question from a pretty early age in our lives, what is right and required for acceptance? Because if we can figure out what is right and required for acceptance, then we will feel that we belong, then we will feel that we're significant, and then we'll feel that we're secure. And so in my family of origin, I'm the eldest of four children, grew up in a Roman Catholic family. And so I answered this question for all sorts of reasons that would take far too long for me to explain today, and I no longer need group therapy about it. But what I decided for me to belong in my family of origin, to be secure and be significant, what is right and required for acceptance was that I was a good boy and I didn't get anything wrong. You see, wherever we go, we're still answering this question. I have the privilege of travelling overseas and we've been to the Sistine Chapel in Rome and when I walked into the Sistine Chapel, I walked into the presence of God. They may have different theology to us, but people have been worshipping Jesus in that place for centuries. And so I walk in there and I touch the presence of God. Everything inside of me as a Pentecostal when I touch the presence of God wants to shout and raise my hands in the air. But in the Sistine Chapel, they employ four people to consistently throughout the course of the day can say to the crowds, shh. Because in the Catholic Church, to honour the presence of God, you go silent. But in a Pentecostal church, to honour the presence of God, we go loud. And so I want to yell in the presence of God, but if I do, I'm not going to belong there, I'm not going to be significant, and I certainly won't be secure because I'll be taken out by those that go, shh. What's right and required for acceptance in the Sistine Chapel is that you're quiet. What's right and required for acceptance in a Pentecostal church is that we are loud. And so we bump into this all the way through. When you went to school, you, you were trying to figure out what's right and required for acceptance in the school that you went to. When you went into a sporting club, when you went to learn music, when you went to learn ballet, what's right and required for acceptance always comes down to performance. Because we're just wanting to belong, we're wanting to be secure, we're wanting to be significant. If I turned up here today dressed as a goth, if I came dressed completely in black with black nail polish, black eye makeup on, black hair, it would take you a little while to settle into the fact that I might have something to say to you. Because that's not what's right and required for acceptance when you come to preach in a church. If I came dressed like this even 30 years ago in a church as the preacher, they probably wouldn't have let me in because I wasn't wearing a suit and tie. And so what's right and required for acceptance defines belonging, defines significance and defines security. And so we answer this question and what happens is that it begins to define how we learn love and how we give love. Because we're wanting to fit in. 
And so there are three things that happen that become roadblocks to us to loving unconditionally. The first is because we answer the question, what is right and required for acceptance, we come up with a performance answer. I have to perform in a certain way for these people to love me, to care about me, that I would have warm fuzzies given to me, not cold pricklies. And so in my family of origin, when I was a good boy and I didn't get anything wrong, it was a nice, calm environment. However, when I did the opposite, things became a lot more volatile. And so I learned love is based on behaviour. It's, it's conditional. And we've all learnt love this way. We've learnt that if we perform right, we are loved. If we don't perform right, we're not loved. And because we've learned it that way, that's how we give it. More often than not, we're loving other people around us on the basis of their performance. We give ourselves the right to criticise and judge other people because they don't do things the way we think they should. I want you to think about driving on the roads in Melbourne and I want you to think about somebody who's just cut you off in the traffic or is holding you up and I wonder how you love that person in the other car that just did something that you don't think is right. Sometimes it's the one finger salute, sometimes it's language in the car that you wouldn't use in church, sometimes it's you bipping the horn. I'm not sure that Jesus loves the driver of that car in the way that you just expressed yourself. There's all sorts of things that we do when we're married and we, you know, if, if people don't put the toilet seat down, then we give ourselves the right to be angry with them. They don't squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom of the tube rather than the middle of the tube. When they don't wash up properly, when they don't make the bed, there's all sorts of really little things where we judge other people and we judge their performance. At workplace, where somebody is not doing their job properly, we begin to give ourselves permission to criticise and judge them. We talk behind their back, we gossip, and none of that has got anything to do with love loving one another as I have loved you. It's all conditional because it's all about performance. And so we have this place inside of us where we've learnt love on the basis of performance. And when we're trying to love people from performance, we're loving them conditionally. And so the Holy Spirit, he sees that inside of us and he wants to set us free. He wants us to become like him. And so he begins conversations with us about that and we can find that very challenging because we want to be right. We don't actually want to accept that the other person is worthy of my warm affection when they've done something that I think is not appropriate. I take on the role of being the one who teaches them how to behave properly, even though my behaviour may not necessarily be correct. Who cares whether the toilet seat's up or down? Who cares whether you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle or the bottom? Why do we make things like that so important? The second thing that happens when we answer this question, when we answer the question, what is right and required for acceptance, when we're trying to belong, when we're trying to be significant, and we're trying to be secure, which are all part of the way God has made us. The second thing that happens is that we create councils of fear. And so I answered the question in my family of origin that I had to be a good boy and I had to not get anything wrong. When I make that decision, I now have created councils of fear because now I'm afraid of getting something wrong and now I'm afraid of not being a good boy. And so what happens is I create a fear of rejection and a fear of failure because I've chosen a certain form of performance that gets me accepted and the flip side of that is I'm now afraid of not being that person. And so when we live with fear, we don't love well. We, we, it's, it's almost impossible to love well from fear because when our fear buttons get pushed, we want to control the environment and make sure that we're okay. And wherever control is present, we're not loving like God loves because God doesn't control any of us. 
So God doesn't love us on the basis of our performance and he doesn't love us on the basis of control. He doesn't love us through a a framework of I need to control you. No, he invites us into a relationship where we would honour him and allow him to change us in the way that he wants to change us. And so in 2004, I found myself at the end of 2004 becoming aware of a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, a fear of being misunderstood and a fear of being taken advantage of. And I found the Holy Spirit beginning to speak to me about this. I've been leading Stairway. It wasn't called Stairway then, but for 15 years at that point, I was becoming known around our own nation and internationally. And so everybody looking from the outside in thought that everything was going great. I was the golden-haired boy of the C3 movement at that time. But I'm living with this fear. And as the Lord begins to show me this fear, I begin to realise how it influences my relationship with Lynn, my wife, with my three children, Hannah, Aaron and David, how it influences my staff, how it influences the way that I lead, how I drive on the roads, how I treat other people. Maybe not with my words, but in my attitude on the inside. And so the Lord begins this journey with me about wanting to set me free. And so the beginning of the journey, it was if perfect love casts out all fear and I have this level of fear in my life, then I don't have a deep enough revelation of the love of God because if I did, the fear wouldn't be present. And so I need to have an experience or encounter with the love of God to know the love of Christ by experience and encounter, which surpasses what you know in your head that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. So I went on a journey. It's too long to explain in full today, but suffice to say that by April of 2005, two Sundays in a row, I was lying on my bed in a fetal position, crying my eyes out, totally afraid that no one would turn up to church. Fear is false expectations appearing real. And so we all live with fear because we've all decided what is right and required for acceptance and the flip side of it is we've got counsels of fear. And so that fear, I ended up uh, over in New Zealand with Hamish and Dieter Vett, Uh, who have developed this whole way of helping people connect with God through prayer. It's called refocusing or God spaces. It's a really long story and I'm cutting it really short today, but suffice to say I stood beside a tree out in a garden at Pihar Beach outside of Auckland in the freezing cold. And when I stood there because of a whole bunch of things that had happened, I had an encounter with God where I knew that he loved me because I breathe. And this extraordinary weeping, overwhelmed experience of God and his belief in me because of who he is, not what I do. God loves because he is love. He doesn't love me on the basis of my behavior. He loves me on the basis of who he is. And that experience and encounter has changed everything in my life. It's changed stairway. It's changed my marriage. It's changed my relationship with my children because I had an experience and encounter that dealt with the fear that was keeping me wanting to control everything. So when we answer this question, what is right and required for acceptance, because we're wanting to fulfill the need that God has put inside of us to belong, to be significant and be secure, we end up with a conditional way of loving people based on performance and their behaviour. We end up with a conditional way of loving people based on our fear. And then the third thing that happens is that we love ourselves and others conditionally through self-centeredness, self-reliance and self-condemnation. We find that our world focuses and swings around us whenever pressure comes on, when we're squeezed. When we're squeezed by life, it's very easy for us to become self-centred. What have I got to do to stay safe in this situation? What have I got to do to stay safe when these people are rejecting me, are criticising me? What have I got to do to maintain I'm in control and make sure that they lose and I win? 
I become self-reliant with God when he takes a long time to act suddenly. We serve a God of process and he's, he's an agricultural God. He's not a technology God. He just takes time. And we're praying and our prayers aren't getting answered and we've gone way past midnight and we jump in and we become self-reliant we help God. We, we find it difficult to trust him at times and to yield to him and, and to actually rely fully on him because we, we've found that people around us, we can't rely on them. And so we become self-reliant. We also become self-condemning because we're loving ourselves through behavior as much as we're loving everybody else through behavior. And so we've, we've become self-condemning and we condemn ourselves and we're not good enough, we don't have what it takes, nobody loves me, I'm going to go eat some worms. We, we live in a culture that is overwhelmed with bullying and, and with you know, body image issues and sexuality that's causing people, both male and female, to not love themselves but to condemn themselves. That We've got this whole issue where people are trying to find comfort in pornography and anorexia and in bulimia and self-cutting and, and all sorts of things that are going on and bullying others to try and show that they're dominant but really what's happening is that they're very weak because they need to try and control somebody else. And, and so this whole self-condemnation piece is starting to rise and people are losing sight of love. This is our greatest hour as far as I can see. If we could only learn to love one another as Christ has loved us, we would show the world a way out of what is taking place. Show a way out of the wars that are taking place and the refugees and the, the, um, all the famine that's happening in Somalia and Sudan and, and something that could happen in Venezuela where the children are being malnourished in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. This is an hour where I believe that God is wanting to actually come after our conditional way of loving because he wants us to display the unconditional love of God because by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so you shouldn't be surprised if the Holy Spirit is like a dog with a bone at the minute and he's coming after the way that you love people through their behavior, where you love people from fear and where you're loving people from self-stuff that he's actually wanting to deconstruct that conditional way that we've learnt to love and reconstruct us around his unconditional way of loving. He loves you, he accepts you, it has got nothing to do with your behaviour. What would it look like for us to love other people like that? That we wouldn't treat them on the basis of their behaviour, but we treat them from the basis that God, God treats us from the basis that he is love. And so regardless of my behaviour, he finds a place to love me from. And I feel his affection, I feel his warmth. He may not be impressed with my sin, but he's certainly not condemning me for it. And he's not wanting to punish me for it. He's actually focused on my righteousness, he's not focused on my sin. And so what we find is that, that God is actually desiring to bring us into these spaces where we would learn to love others the way that he loves us. But as he takes us on that journey, we bump into these internal barriers. We bump into these internal issues that we're wrestling with. And we, unless we face them head on, we stay captive to loving conditionally rather than loving one another as I loved you. Remembering that it's a commandment. It's not an option. It's a commandment to learn how to step into this space. And that he said to make disciples, to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon how much you're loved by God so you love others well. Often our eye gets taken onto another person's behaviour so I can now criticise and judge you. Often our eye gets taken to our fear and so now I can control you. Often our eye gets taken to self-reliance, self-condemnation and self-centeredness which means that I can look after me the more than I look after you. And so the Holy Spirit, I think, in this hour across our nation is speaking to his people 
about discovering how to have experience and encounters with his love. And that it's not enough for us to know in our head that he loves us, but he actually wants to deal with these issues in our hearts. And so he wants to deconstruct our conditional way of loving so that we can learn to love unconditionally. Recently in America, George Varner's research group did some research for on uh, self-confessed Christians, people who said, I'm born again, I love Jesus. And he asked them the question, how do you measure your spiritual maturity? 81% of Christians that were asked how they measure their spiritual maturity said they measure their spiritual maturity by how well they follow the rules. They measured their spiritual maturity on the basis of performance. They didn't measure their spiritual maturity on the basis of acceptance. I'm accepted by God. And I think that that's the case here in our nation as well. And that there's a journey that God is trying to take us all on. And so I'm going to introduce you to the Godhead this morning. I'm going to have these two guys come and I need a lady. I probably need a volunteer so I don't embarrass anybody. So who would like to be the Holy Spirit if you're a woman? Come on, you'll do. You're great. You're in. Let's put our hands together for this beautiful lady over here. Okay, I need you to ha hold hands with these two guys and I need you to turn into a circle, make it a circle. All right, okay. Very good, thank you, Sean. I appreciate you helping me. And so uh, what we've got here is we've got the Father, we've got the Son, and we've got the Holy Spirit. So I want you to think with me right now about when you came to faith. What actually happened in your relationship with the Godhead when you came to faith? Justin, turn, turn around so that Justin's facing me. That's great, thank you. So, so when you came to faith, what do you think happened? So I'm out here, I'm far away from God. I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, whatever you want to call me. I don't love God. I think Christians are nerds. You know, church has got nothing to do with life. And I start to bump into some Christians and some people start praying for me. And I resist, you know, any sort of witnessing, but the Holy Spirit goes way beyond witnessing and deals with our hearts through prayer. And he starts to woo me and draw me towards himself. And I, I start to find myself getting strangely interested in this religion that I've got no real interest in. And, you know, I don't believe there's a God and I argue about somewhere that I don't believe in, which is all a little bit illogical. But, but I keep getting wooed and drawn and eventually I make a decision that I want to become a Christian. And so I pray and I ask Jesus to come into my life. At that point, what do you think happened to you in your relationship with the Godhead. This is what I think most Christians believe because 81% think it's about following the rules. I think that most people believe that they got connected to Jesus, that Jesus forgave them for their sin and they got connected to the Godhead through Jesus. But then what happened is that they came to church, which was a bit of a problem. Because when you come to church, you get starting to get taught about what the right behaviour is for Christians and how you should behave right. And this taps right back into the way that you've experienced love conditionally as you were growing up. And so you start to think if you behave right, this person here will love you and care about you. But if you do something wrong, which then causes you to feel separated from them for a period of time, the church teaches us that if we just pray more, if we just read our Bible more, if maybe we fast more, that will get this person happy with me again and I get reconnected to him. But then I stuff it up again. I make a mistake, I do something that I've told is wrong and so I feel disconnected. And so now I think, wow, what have I got to do? Well, now, maybe now I've got to learn how to fast. Maybe I should try and read the Bible from cover to cover. Maybe if I double tie, that'll impress God and I'll get back into his good books and I'll get connected to Jesus again. And so our relationship with God is all built around how we're behaving and we think we've got to manage our behaviour. We think the gospel is about making people better, not making people different. And so this is the way that many Christians live. When 81% of people say their spiritual maturity is measured by how well they follow the rules, that's what they're saying. 
I follow well, I'm connected. I don't follow well, I'm disconnected. I follow well, I'm connected. I don't follow well, I'm disconnected. That's not what happened when you got born again. That's not what my, my, my Bible tells me. My Bible tells me this, that when I was born again, I was adopted into the family of God. So that what means I actually came right into the family of God. And I came in here with all of my crap, with all of my dysfunction, with all of my brokenness, with all of my sin, and this is where I live regardless of my behaviour. That there is nothing that I can do that would separate me from their love. And they put me in here because they're the only ones that can help set me free. They're the only ones who have the ability to impart a new belief system to me that would actually help me to become like them. And so when I stuff it up, when I make mistakes, when I get things wrong, they are actually somewhat rejoicing because if I would own that and ask them to help me, then I would find them in the midst of my brokenness and my pain. But, and so, but most people don't think that this is where, but this is where you are. You can sit down now, guys. Thank you so much. Can we put our hands together for the God help? In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Do you not recognize that Christ is within you? 167 times Paul says something like, don't you see that you are in Christ, Christ is in you, you've adopted, you're in the family of God. You are a child of God and you live in the, in the family of God. And when you live in the family of God, they are the ones that are wanting to set you free from a performance-based way of loving, from your fear and from a self-dominated world. They're wanting their kingdom to invade your kingdom and they want you to let go of the self and embrace them but they do it out of love they do it out of acceptance they do it out of belief in you they do it out of wanting to resource you they're not trying to call you out to punish you they're trying to call you up to step into your inheritance but because we don't actually we don't live in this space and we're not seeking experiences encounters with God we're trying to do it on our own strength we miss the wonder and the joy of experiencing the deep love of God I want to conclude this morning by reading from the book of Colossians, if you have a Bible, if you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. These verses have been speaking to me for probably a couple of decades now, at least 15 years. And, and I'm always amazed when I read them that there is something else called love, which goes above kindness and compassion and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. There's something else that is way above those things. So as those who are chosen, holy and beloved, put on. Why do we have trouble putting on kindness and humility and gentleness? Why do we have problems putting on unconditional love to those who have hurt us? Why do we find it difficult to be kind to somebody who has just rejected us? Why do we find it hard to be compassionate to the person who's just cut us off in the traffic, not knowing whether they've just had bad news that their father's died? Why do we find it so difficult to put these things on? Why do we find it difficult to put love on? Well, I think that Paul tells us here, he says, so as those chosen, holy and beloved put on. He's assuming that we've had revelation, that we're chosen, that we're holy and we're beloved. When you know you're chosen, you will belong. When you know you're holy, you will know you're significant. And when you know you're beloved, you will be secure. You see, you've got this three-pronged power cord wanting to belong, be secure and significant. And you've tried to answer it by what's right and required for acceptance. 
But when you're in Christ, He wants you to pull it out of all that stuff. And He wants you to put it into Him. And He wants you to have a revelation that you were chosen by Him. He called you into His family. You didn't choose Him, He chose you. He chose you with all of your junk, with all of your brokenness, with all of your dysfunction. And He brought you into His family and set you at His table because He wants to heal you and set you free. This is why Christ died, was to set us free. He wants you to know that you're holy. You're holy, you're blameless, you're beyond reproach. All of your sins have been forgiven. God doesn't count any of your trespasses against you. But in self-condemnation, we do count them against ourselves. And we count them against other people when we judge them and we criticize them. But when you have a revelation that God wants you to be sun conscious, not sin conscious. Romans 6 verse 11, be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The church has tried to get us obsessed about our sin, whereas the Holy Spirit is trying to get us obsessed about our sonship, about being children of God. So when you know that you're holy, you're blameless and beyond reproach, you know you're significant. And when you know that you are loved by God because of who He is, not what you do, you will feel secure. I can walk into any room, anywhere in part of the world these days because of what happened for me in 2005 and what I've built on over the last 12 years where I know, not with arrogance or pride, deep humility, because that's everything that Jesus has done for me, that when I walk into the room, I bring with me rivers of living water that can change the lives of anyone in that room. And I'm happy to release those rivers of living water because I'm chosen. I'm holy and I'm beloved. And so I live under His opinion of me, not the opinion of others. Guard from loss by keeping your eye upon how much you're loved by God so you can love others well. And so he wants you to learn to keep your eye on the fact that you're chosen so you belong, that you're holy so you know you're significant and that you're loved so that you feel secure. But your eye gets drawn away to other things. Let me finish this morning with the story of Mephibosheth out of the Old Testament. Mephibosheth is a difficult name for me to say over and over again, so I'm just going to call him Frank because that's easier. And so Frank was born to Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. David has been anointed to be the king of Israel, but has been pursued by Saul. Saul and Jonathan die in a battle. And so David assumes being the king of Israel. The culture of the day was that when a new king came in, he killed all the descendants of the previous king so that nobody could challenge him for the rulership. And so Frank's wet nurse, Frank's nurse, decides she needs to protect Frank from being killed. So she picks him up and is running to hide him. And in the process, she drops him and breaks his feet. So he becomes a cripple. Our parents did the very best job they could. Our teachers did the very best job they did. But they tried to carry us to places of safety, but they inevitably dropped us and and we're broken. We're broken because of the conditional way that we were loved. This, this sense of, am I good enough? Do I fit? Where do I belong? Am I secure? Am I significant? David, many years later, says, I want to show the kindness of God to any descendants of Jonathan. And so they tell him that Frank is still alive and they bring Frank to him. And, Fra- and David shows him the kindness of God by bringing him into his family 
and puts him at his table and treats him as one of his own kids. This is the picture of what God did for us. It was the kindness of God that led you to repentance. He brought you in as a broken person who has nothing to offer him other than your love. Frank had nothing to offer David, but he wanted to treat him well because of his love for Jonathan. He wants to, God wants to treat you well because of his love for Jesus. And Jesus is in you, and so he wants to treat you really well. He wants to love you deeply. He wants to set you free. And so he brings Frank into his family, and he then not only brings him in, but he says, everything that used to be Jonathan's, I want Frank to have as his inheritance. And so everything that belongs to Jesus, he wants to give to you as your inheritance. That everything that Jesus has become, you can become. And so God brings broken people into his family and he sits them around his table because he wants to set them free and he wants them to learn his kindness and his love so that we can then give it away to other people. But like Frank, we're aware that we're broken and our eye can go to the wrong places. This morning, it's my prayer for you that you would go on a journey for the rest of your spiritual life and that the goal of your spirituality, the mark of your spiritual maturity would be how are you learning to love others as Christ has loved you? Maybe the beginning point for you is that you need to know how much God loves you. Maybe the beginning point is that you need revelation about chosen, holy, beloved. Maybe you're on that journey and and you're, you're beginning to learn how to love other people no matter where you are. I want to suggest to you that that's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Guard from loss by keeping your eye on how much you're loved by God so you can love other people well. Could we all stand together this morning? I just want to pray for you and then we'll go and have a great day. So why don't you just put your hands out in front of you as though you're receiving a gift and let me just pray. Father, I... I'm asking that each of us this morning, I include myself, would receive the gift, would receive more revelation that we're chosen, that we're holy and we're beloved. Lord, I'm praying that you would help us to make the mark of our spiritual maturity how well we're loving other people in the way that you love us. I pray, Lord, that from this day on, Holy Spirit, you would keep our eyes attentive to your love for us that we might love others well. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would understand that you commanded us to do this and you're expecting that we would step into this space and allow you free access to our hearts, that you can deconstruct our conditional love and reconstruct us around your unconditional love. Lord, it's my prayer, not only for this church, but the Church of Australia, that the world would know that we're disciples because we love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, everybody. I appreciate it.